Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and welcome to What Women Must Know. This is a program that really is designed to empower you with what I believe to be truthful information so you can make informed decisions. And I truly, truly believe at this point in time where we are, uh, the more informed we are able to be about many issues regarding our health and well-being, the more we are able to truly navigate ourselves during times of change and also be able to make the choices that allow us to stay healthy and well and support our family and community. So that's, that's really what the purpose of this show is all about. And every week I have very profound, provocative conversations with people who have great wisdom and experience and, uh, and guidance to share with us. And today is no exception. So today I have from Australia, my guest is Peter Ridd. We're going to talk about a subject that um, I recently heard Peter talk about at um, a seminar and I uh, was very inspired by what he had to say, and so I invited him to be on the show because we're going to be talking about the Great Barrier Reef. And for people listening, I'm sure anyone listening has heard of the Great Barrier Reef, just huge, amazing um, natural wonder um, off the coast of uh, Australia. And um, we're talking about the fact that the Great Barrier Reef is thriving, and also exploring the, the conversation about climate change and why it's not what you think. So it's a fascinating conversation that's going to be uh, happening with uh, Peter Ridd today. And I'm glad you're listening because we have to keep open minds and delve more deeply into what's really happening in this. The Great Barrier Reef story is a fascinating story. So let me just share a little bit about Peter. He is a geophysicist with over 100 publications and 35 years experience working on the Great Barrier Reef and developed a wide range of world-first optical and electronic instruments for measuring environmental conditions near corals and other ecosystems. He was head and professor of physics at James Cook University for over a decade before being fired. And in 2018, in 2018, for questioning the quality assurance systems used by reef science institutions. Some of the poor quality work relates to the effect of climate change and agriculture on the reef. Rick now volunteers his time to the Institute of Public Affairs to improve quality assurance systems of science used by Australian governments to make environmental laws and regulations. And he runs the Reef Rebels YouTube channel, which is where you want to go to learn all about the conversation we're having today. So first of all, Peter, welcome to What Women Must Know. Thank you for your time and um, for the, the great work that you're doing. I have to say, I was so inspired when I heard your presentation, and that's why I wanted to follow up with having you on the show today. No worries. Thanks very much for inviting me. So um, let's just jump into things because, um, you know, you've spent most of your career involved with monitoring and uh, understanding the cycles of the Great Barrier Reef and the, the very complex ecosystem that exists there. So let's start at the very beginning. For people who don't know anything about what the Great Barrier Reef is, why don't we explain and, and start by letting people understand what this uh, truly natural wonder on this planet is all about. 
Well, it's the biggest coral reef system on Earth by a long sea mile. So it's off the northeastern coast of Australia. Uh, the Great Barrier Reef is about 1,500 miles long, so it's not quite as long as California, but it's getting up there. It's got the same area as, you know, roughly Germany or Italy. Um, it has 3,000 individual coral reefs, each of which are a couple of miles long and maybe a mile or two across. Uh, and uh, most of it is quite a long way from the coast. You know, it's, you know, 50 to, well, maybe 25 to 50 miles from the coast. Um, it's all completely in a national park, and just to give you the sort of the end of the story almost, uh, it's monitored very well by the Australian Institute of Marine Science, and in 2022, it had got record amounts of coral on it as measured by the Australian Institute of Marine Science. So despite all the gloom and doom that you've doubtless heard about, the reef is dying or dead, nothing could be further from the truth, in fact. And this is why it's such a big story, because uh, I certainly had heard that story that the Great Barrier Reef is dying and it's due to climate change and this is a disaster, a catastrophe. And, you know, everyone was, you know, terrified by the thought that it's being attacked and it's, you know, it's dying because of the heat is changing, whatever the reason. So so we can we start with what the the, the myth has been about the Great Barrier Reef. So we can give background to people who aren't aware of what this, how the, how the story around the Great Barrier Reef, the narrative has been used to support this theory of climate change, which in actual fact, when it comes to the reef, is a lie. Correct, yeah. So if we go a long way back to the 1960s, when science first started on the Great Barrier Reef, when marine biologists first started getting going, at that stage, they actually said, oh, the reef is doomed in about 10 years due to a plagues of these crown of thorn starfish, which are natural starfish, which do indeed kill a lot of uh, coral. It grows back. So even in the 1960s, they were predicting the, the doom of the Great Barrier Reef. But then in 1998, when the, the whole um, climate change thing really got going and there was an El Nino year, and a lot of coral died, or apparently died, from hot water. And so they said, oh, well, the big threat now is actually climate change, and it's going to kill the reef. This 1998, it was indeed quite a lot of coral was killed from that. And then another event in 2002, they found, yeah, a lot of coral had died. And remember, one of the reasons they only found a lot of coral had died that in those years was they actually hadn't really been monitoring the reef to a great extent in terms of these beaching events. So they really didn't know what had happened in previous years. Then in 2016, um, there was a bleaching event um, due to an, another El Nino. And in that one, actually, a significant amount of coral did die. Maybe 8% 8 of the coral on the entire reef did die. They said there was another one in 2017, another one in 2020, and another one just last year. But actually, when you look at the data... Um, there was almost no coral lost in 2020 or 2022. And even the worst one in 2016, yes, we lost 8% of the coral, which sounds terrible. But when you consider that between 2012 and 2016, there'd been an almost 100% increase in the amount of coral because coral can, you know, rapidly increase its amount. You know, an 8% reduction was relatively minor. 
And in fact, the biggest loss of coral is due to the hurricanes we get. We call them cyclones on this case. Um, and the big waves from the cyclones will smash a lot of coral. It always grows back. But essentially, what we've been able to prove is that all these catastrophic doom stories about all the loss due to coral bleaching have been completely wrong, that we haven't lost a significant amount of coral from bleaching. We've got record high coral now, so how could we have lost all this coral if now we've got record amounts of coral? So in the presentation that um, I heard you speak at, you showed these graphs, and you actually showed, based on the research, that the coral is growing and is robust and is probably one of the healthiest times of coral growth that you have seen since it's been charted, which was astounding to actually learn that. Yes, so the Australian Institute of Marine Science, they tow a diver around 100 of these reefs. It's a staggering effort. You know, they actually have to tow a diver behind a boat for about 1,000 miles to go around all these reefs, and they do that every year. They've been doing that since 1985, and they estimate the amount of coral. And we've got more coral now since any time since records first began in 1985. And that data shows that there's been minimal loss from these so-called devastating hot water bleaching events. Um, so it completely destroys the argument that first that the reef is in bad state and that it's been um, affected by climate change. What the data shows repeatedly is that, yes, the amount of coral fluctuates quite dramatically, mostly due to hurricanes, but also due to these crown of thorns starfish, and these are entirely natural events. But overall, the reef is in great shape, and, and you'd expect it. This is a reef, unlike the Florida reefs on, you know, in the U.S. Florida has, has got some great reefs, but they're very close to a highly populated area. You know, Florida's got tens of millions of people living close by. On our Great Barrier Reef, you know, it's way bigger than any of the reefs in Florida. There's only one million people living along a coastline that's well over a thousand miles long. So there's no people pressure, there's almost no fishing pressure, it's a long way from the coast, and climate change isn't affecting it. This is one of the most unsport, pristine ecosystems on Earth, and it just beggars belief that the, the so-called scientific institutions have managed to convince the world that the reef is on its last legs. And, of course, people up here in North Queensland, where I live, just opposite the reef, we get really quite angry when people run down the reputation on the reef when you can just go out there and see that it's in such wonderful condition. So some of the criticisms about the health of the reef came from um, a, a belief that there was a lot of the, the pesticides and fertilizers washing into the ocean from farming and it was um, killing the reef. Can you help us get past that story? Yep, yep. So um, I mentioned that the first scare on the reef was these crown of thorn starfish, which were in, which go up, you know, sometimes are in plague proportions. That was in the 1960s. Then in the end of the 1980s, they started to think, oh, well, maybe the farmers are killing the reef. There was no evidence for that. So a lot of work has been done um, over the last 30 years, measuring the amount of nutrients from fertilizers and pesticides out on the reef. Now, remember I said that the reef is, you know, between 25, 50, even 100 miles or more from the coast. So when stuff comes down a river and washes out to sea, it, you know, by the time it gets out 
to the Great Barrier Reef. It's been diluted down to such low concentrations that you can't actually even measure the effect of the uh, fertilizers. Or, for example, pesticides on the Great Barrier Reef, pesticides from farms, and there's not a huge amount of farming along this coast, but there is a bit. But pesticides, when you actually measure them on the reef, are in such incredibly low concentrations, you can't even detect them, right, with the most sensitive scientific equipment. So, you know, I mean, we should always be minimising the amount of pesticides we put on, on, on the agriculture and farmers try to do that. But in terms of compared with other areas on Earth where there's pesticides being used, the Great Barrier Reef is the one which is the, you know, the less than almost anywhere else on Earth. And yet they're claiming that these pesticides are killing the reef, and it just, just is not true. They also say that the mud from soil erosion is killing the reef. Now, I and my group at James Cook University, we invented the instrumentation for measuring mud concentrations for long, long periods of time around reefs and other, other ecosystems. And we were able to demonstrate, without a shadow of a doubt, that the mud never gets out to the Great Barrier Reef proper. And even very close to shore, um, it's uh, a negligible effect. But out on the reef itself, the mud just doesn't get there. So that was the, the whole agricultural, agriculture's killing the reef was the second major bogus scare on the reef and then then that was followed by the climate change thing um whatever happened to the crown of thorns starfish because that was a big story that i i remember uh hearing about that they there was an invasion of the species and they were you know just eating up destroying the coral and it's going to be the end of the reef <laughs> so uh, that obviously that doomsday <laughs> the story didn't happen but what what happened to what was going on there with that uh, crown of thorns well, well of course they, <laughs> yeah. they they still invoke crown of thorns starfish as as a, a stressor for the reef they still do now i remember you know i'm 62 and i remember when i was a kid you know when i was 10 years old they were predicting the reef would all be dead, dead within a decade and it was very scary but what we now know is that these plagues they come and they go they're like locust plagues in western australia in you know western queensland here where you get a particular year and for some reason uh, you get a plague of locusts, then next year you don't get them. We've seen the plagues come and go. There's been three major plagues since the 1960s. They come and they go. At the moment there, there's a patch down in the southern Great Barrier Reef where there's a lot of crown of thorns, but that seems to be the only place where they are at the moment. But, you know, in the next five to ten years, they'll come back. We don't quite understand what causes them. But remember, a crown of thorns starfish can produce literally, you know, tens of millions of larvae. And if a few more than usual survive, then you end up with a plague. Now, we know these plagues have been around for thousands of years because the geologists have drilled cores in the reef and they can find the skeletons of very large numbers of crown of thorns starfish fragments down in the, in the reef and they can date that back to you know, a couple of thousand years ago. So we know that these plagues have been around since forever. It's just that we didn't notice them until the 1960s because the coral is underwater. Very few people ever go out to the Great Barrier Reef. No scientists were going out to the Great Barrier Reef until the 1960s. So we suddenly find, ooh, these creatures are eating a lot of coral. Maybe that's unnatural, but now we know it's not unnatural. It's completely normal and they will come and they will go. 
so interesting how um, part of it is sort of lack of proper understanding and research and science, right? And then, you know, you have the other side of this story, and that's how it's um, uh, usurped, you might say, to to um, give evidence to a narrative about the climate change story, right? So they, they're using misinformation to prove that this is another piece of the climate story disaster, which is such a relief to know <laughs> that that's not true. And um, and then you wonder what else is not true about the climate change story. And we'll get into that in a minute. But I wanted to stick with um, the fascination of the coral reef. And what got you interested in studying the Great Barrier Reef? That's been your life's work. How did that happen? Uh, it was completely by accident. So I live in North Queensland. I'm a physicist by trade, so which is strange because most people think that you know, to study corals, you've got to be a biologist. But there's a lot of physics in the ocean which you need to understand. You know, even things like climate change and the way the water heats up, that's actually a physics problem. It's not a biology problem. So I was just uh, finishing a master's degree and a job came up at the Australian Institute of Marine Science studying the ocean, studying how water moves, how mud moves, how, you know, all these things associated with the environment. And they wanted somebody with a physics background. I thought, well, <laughs> I don't know anything about the ocean, but they said they'd train us up. And so that was the beginning of one of those accidental things that uh, decides what you do for the rest of your life. Yes, it's so interesting how we find our way in life and our purpose. So have you been out on the Great Barrier Reef and scuba dived around and actually... Oh, yes, yeah, you know, especially when I was... When I used to work at the Australian Institute of Marine Science, I was, we had to do a lot of diving for putting instrumentation out to measure ocean currents, to measure the, you know, tides, water temperatures, all these things. Um, I don't dive so much nowadays, um, I, but I do a lot of snorkeling. I do a bit of snorkeling, I should say. Um, we're going out just in a in a couple of a few weeks, in fact, to check out a reef that was supposedly badly damaged last year, but uh, all the reports are saying it's in brilliant condition. So we'll go out and see that. Yeah. So for people who don't know anything about coral reefs, what are some of the fascinating facts about coral, and uh, you know how they grow and what they do and their purpose? Well, the reef is just a fascinating place. For example, if you go back um, just 18,000 years when the sea level was a lot lower, the Great Barrier Reef didn't even exist. The sea level was so low that all those reefs were literally flat-topped hills. So as the sea level goes up and down with geological time, the, they get covered and then they get, um, and they get uncovered and... So hill, these reefs, which are, would have been like flat-topped hills, then get covered with water and the coral starts growing again. But I think one of the most interesting things about coral is this whole bleaching thing that you may have heard about. That, and actually it makes them more able to adapt to climate change, whether it's natural or, or man-made, than virtually other organisms. So, for example, bleaching is when in a coral, so let's go back to a coral, you probably think of, some of these corals are as big as cars sort of thing. And each of those corals has a thing called a polyp, which is a little animal, which is maybe a quarter of an inch across, and it's like a little sea anemone. And inside that polyp, there grows the algae called the zooxanthellae. It's a symbiotic relationship between the, the animal polyp and this plant algae. 
And when the water gets hot or cold or if it gets too fresh or whatever, the coral feels sick, sometimes the coral chucks out that algae. And it will often happen when the water gets very hot, and that's what bleaching is. The coral goes white because the algae gives the coral its colour. Now, the crazy thing is, or amazing thing is, that the coral can actually select the type of algae that it grows inside itself to accommodate the, the temperature of the water that it's in. So if it found, oh, I took this algae in, you know, Taipei, the water got hot, it wasn't the best coral, it wasn't the best algae for me um, to make food and all the rest of it, chunks that out and will take in type B, which will allow it to live in water that's one or two or three or four degrees hotter. So the algae, so the coral can actually adapt to different temperatures simply by chucking out the algae during bleaching and taking in different species of that algae and it will be, you know, able to adapt to much higher or lower temperatures. Almost no other organism can do that. They have to go through multiple cycles of, you know, reproduction and natural selection to be able to change their DNA to be able to cope with different temperatures. Coral can do it by swapping out the algae with another one. It can do it in a couple of months. <laughs> you know, I am I, listening to you and you go, what an intelligent being that is, this little quarter of an inch creature who has figured out how to change its diet to survive in changing environments. Yeah, essentially, it just changes this little this sort of little algae that lives inside it because that algae can photosynthesize and get you know energy from the sun it just changes it so you know they've been around for a couple hundred million years so it's not surprising you know that nature is nature is so resilient you know the idea that a half a degree temperature rise all the corals are going to die now they reckon with a 1.5 degree temperature rise 99 percent of the corals on earth are going to die and this is just barking crazy right I mean, we're already supposedly at one degree and we've got record high coral and they reckon another half a degree, 99% of the corals die. And yet, the warmer the water, we know the corals grow faster. I mean, in the US, where do you go to see coral? You go to Florida. You don't go to New York or, or Maine to see coral. By the way, there are corals in that cold water, but they just grow so slowly they can't form reefs. So we've got this crazy situation where everybody knows that if you want to see corals, you go to warm water, and yet a half a degree or one degree increase in temperature, and somehow all these corals are going to die. It's just ridiculous. Nature is much more resilient than, you know, a one than what a one degree temperature rise is going to somehow wipe it all out. So Peter, um, you have these little creatures. Um, that have a symbiotic relationship with algae, and they create this. Is it, is it the cal, is it calcifi, calcification that goes on? What creates the reef itself, the structures of the reef, and and how do they do that? Because that's pretty amazing in its own right. Yeah. So they actually th these reefs, each of these reefs, which is you know as I said, a couple of miles across and maybe a mile long. Uh, uh, couple of miles long and a mile across and maybe 150 feet high these have been built by the by the corals themselves they've built it up over a million years or so from the seabed uh, when the, the water cover, covers it so what they do is they actually take the carbon dioxide out of the water 
and they make calcium carbonate. So they combine it with the calcium ions that are in salty water. They combine that with the carbon dioxide in the water and they make this concrete-like stuff called calcium carbonate, which, in, which over geological times it gets buried and all the rest of it will ultimately become limestone. So a huge number of the limestone deposits all around the world used to be, caused, used to be coral reefs. And they build these massive structures uh, and there's been massive coral reefs in the past and the Great Barrier Reef is the biggest one at the moment. That's that's um, that's pretty clever, don't you think? So they built their homes that keep them safe and support these colonies of of uh, of coral, these little beings. Yeah. In some sense, um, they actually they they're living on the bodies of their dead ancestors as well. So the the reef is all this coral rubble that's being glued together by other organisms and on the surface there's all the live coral so you've actually got them living on the bodies of their dead ancestors um, which is a, a strange thing but <laughs> but they make concrete well, it's not it's not actual concrete but it may as well be it's hard as concrete and they build it yeah 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 it's, it's pretty remarkable um, and talk about it, um, what happens when they start spawning does that is that coming up that's springtime right when they do their spawning. Can you explain yeah, that? In, that's a pretty amazing process. Well, this is an amazing process, and it was only discovered in the 1980s. In fact, I was marginally associated with the first scientific expeditions to look at this because what happens in sometime, I forgot the exact time, but it's associated with a full moon sometime in October, usually a few days after that. Every single, almost every coral on the whole Great Barrier Reef, you know, as big as Germany, releases eggs and, and sperm bundles into the water, which all floats up to the surface. And you get these massive slicks, these pink slicks of mostly eggs on the surface, which are all sticky and uh, rather strange on the surface. You can actually see it from the satellite pictures. It's so big. Um, and that fertilization occurs on the surface and they sink and they spread out and so the, the reef uh, after, after that has literally got trillions and trillions of larvae floating around it and, you know, one, a very small fraction of that will settle out in a suitable place and, and grow new coral. But it's amazing because it all happens on one or two nights of the year. And we know pretty much exactly when that's going to be. I, I should look up the dates when it's going to be. And, of course, there's... Usually a lot of tourists go out to see it and you can see all these slicks out there of this coral spawn. That must be an incredible sight to see. And, and, and what's incredible, somehow it's all happening over, you know, one or two days, one or two nights. Yeah, that, that's right. But what I find the most, thing, most, one thing that's very interesting about that, remember these are huge slicks. And yet we did not know about them to science until 1981 or 82, right? So, you know, they go on about, oh, coral bleaching is a new phenomenon. It's never happened in the past. What a load of rubbish. We were never looking in the past, right? In the same way as we didn't know about coral spawning. Are you seriously going to tell us that coral didn't spawn between 19, before 1981? And yet they'll say coral bleaching never happened until we got this latest global warming problem. So it, what that, it's, it's showing you the amazing discoveries of science, but 
but also the corruption of science that's occurred since then, that they're using this stuff for ideological purposes. And I really want us to get into that, but, but I just have a question before we explore that topic. What happens, so they, the, the ovaries in the sperm, uh, the ovaries get fertilized, and then there are all these little vulnerable, tiny, tiny little creatures floating on the surface. How do they manage to survive, not be, you know, eaten, consumed by birds and fish and everything else? What, what's, what's their strategy? Well, they don't survive. I mean, you know, 99.99% of them probably don't survive. Um, I mean, one of the remarkable things is when this spawning occurs, you get these huge aggregations of jellyfish that are just <laughs> eating this stuff up off of the surface. So their their strategy is just large numbers, uh, and you know, one in a million will survive and settle out on a suitable substrate where there's not already some other coral or something else, and it will grow and become a new coral, and all the thing goes around. So it's like a dandelion seed. You know, it blows off in the wind and, you know, one of those might grow. Um, that's how it works. But most of them certainly um, don't survive. So they're uh, dinner for lots of critters in yep, the ocean. Yep, it's a very wasteful <laughs> business, but that's fairly typical of these things. But it works pretty well. So, I mean, one of the things they're talking about at the moment is they're going to save the Great Barrier Reef like it needs saving because we've got record high coral. But anyway, and they're going to use IVF and they're going to, you know, try to get more larvae out there. On it. I think, are you joking? There are literally trillions <laughs> of these things that are going to be out there. And, you know, I mentioned that we used to put a lot of instrumentation out uh, to measure things. I guarantee you that if you leave a bit uh, an instrument like a cylinder with electronics inside it, cylinder out there, if you don't pick that up within a year to download the data, if you leave that, that out for two years, it will be growing coral. On occasions <laughs> we've failed to pick something up because we it, it shifted in a cyclone or we, we couldn't find it or something like that and we then discovered it three or four years later. It has so much coral and, and, and growth on it that you can't even recognize it for what it originally was. <laughs> so, and these guys think they're going to use IVF to save the Great Barrier Reef on a, on a system that's the size of Germany when there's already trillions of these spawns. It is just completely barking mad. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so unbelievable. How, how long does a coral animal live for? Well, the, the most beautiful type, the acropora and plate coral, the very delicate stuff, um, that will last about 10 to 20 years. It will usually be smashed on our, on our coast where we get a lot of cyclones or hurricanes, just like your Florida coast. Usually what will happen, it will grow very fast, but it's very delicate, and the waves just crash it. But you get the big sort of what we call the massive coral, the parites, and they can grow as big as a small you know, a caravan or a, you know, a small van or something like that, they will live for literally hundreds of years. So they've cored some of these off uh, Queensland here and they're 400 years old So and they're massive. You know, they're, they're 20 feet across sort of thing. Wow. That, you know, I'm so glad we had some time just to talk about coral because I don't think most people know much about coral and are, are just, you know, 
surprised and I would say awed by the species, the intelligence of the species and the ability to adapt to climate change. I mean, if it's been around for millions of years, it had to learn how to adapt because there has been so much climate change over that time that uh, if it didn't adapt, it wouldn't be here, right? Precisely. Exactly. I mean, they've seen, they've been around in the Cretaceous period where the whole world was probably, you know, five degrees hotter, or at least the temperate areas were a good five to ten degrees hotter, maybe not the tropical areas. We know that our, up here in, in, well, we know that about 5,000 years ago, it was a period called the Holocene Climatic Optimum. The whole world was a good degree hotter than it is now. The sea level uh, here was one degree, one what, sorry, three feet higher. I've got to convert from metric to, to imperial or um, you know, the old British unit. So it was about three feet higher here 5,000 years ago. And um, yeah, so it's been through these massive changes and we're worried about half a degree or one degree. They, these corals, they take 10 degrees change through the whole year, you know, and one degree is just nothing for most of these corals. And we know that corals grow about, 30 to 40% faster for every one to two degrees increase in temperature. This is all well-known stuff. So you, obviously you're, you know, you're, you're dedicated to this work. You've spent 35 years of your life. You have developed um, technologies to monitor. You know, you're, you're one of the experts on the subject of the Great Coral Reef. And then you got caught up in... Um, uh, politics, I would say, in your uh, position at Cook University there in uh, in Cannes, right? I believe it's in Cannes where you are. Um, and, Townsville. And, and, Townsville, but that's mine. Oh, Townsville. Townsville. Okay, Townsville. Okay. And and then you uh, you know you got into a clash between um, the work that you were doing and the research that you had, and then other researchers. Um, I guess in the university that were coming out with a very different story. So, right? Do I have that right? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, ultimately, I got fired. Um, so, what happened was that, as I said, we'd developed all this instrumentation for measuring mud around reefs, right? And there were these inshore reefs called around a, a nice little island called Stone Island, and. The, all the other scientists were saying all these corals had died and it had died from all the mud coming off farms and we just couldn't understand this because we, our work had shown completely the opposite. This wasn't the case and I was even surprised by the fact they'd said that coral had died. So I sent a couple of my guys, I had a big group working for me and they came back and said the whole, the whole island is surrounded by beautiful coral and I basically made a point that, you know, where, where's the quality assurance? These guys said this whole island had no coral around it, and yet there's obviously coral around it. And I said, where is the quality assurance that led you to make this conclusion, which, by the way, at that stage had gone all around the world. It was on all the websites that this was indicative of a loss of coral due to farming. And I said, there's a quality assurance problem here. And I also then went on in a, in a separate event to, to say, because of the problems with peer review, which is a very poor quality assurance system, a lot of the work coming out of these scientific institutions on the reef was untrustworthy, right? Because they're getting too much stuff wrong and they're not checking it and you can demonstrate they're making errors. 
Well, when I said their work was untrustworthy, then the university came for me. And to cut a long story short, I got fired. We ended up going to the Australian equivalent of the American Supreme Court, where we got a, a rather a sort of a half good, half bad decision. They said that the university had been wrong to fire me because I had what's called academic freedom of speech. I was allowed to say what I said. But perversely, this is the strange thing, they said they still had a right to fire me because I broke a directive of the university to com to keep their ultimately unlawful and illegal uh, censoring of me quiet. So they were not allowed to censor me, but they were allowed to tell me to be quiet about them unlawfully censoring me. So I still lost my job, um, but we proved that they'd been wrong to to censure me in the first place. So it was it was rather strange. We sort of won the principle, but we we lost the battle. We won the war, but we lost the the, the battle strangely. So that leads me to ask you: um, all of these research studies, papers that are coming out, the ones out of your university that talked about the specific coral issue that didn't exist in the end. Um, do you think it is just sloppy science, or do you believe they are part of an agenda to create more and more evidence of this climate change story? There's a few things occurring here that's ultimately making huge parts of our scientific institutions utterly untrustworthy. So for the Great Barrier Reef, the, the, the primary one actually is that you've got a lot of mostly marine biologists who are emotional about the reef, right? So they went into marine biology and marine science because they love the reef, and I mean love in an in a, in emotional way. When they see coral dying, they get an emotional response which makes them less scientific than they need to be. They then tend to form groups, so you get groupthink forming. Um, they only talk amongst each other so that they convince each other, oh, yeah, the coral reefs must be dying. They then exclude any dissenting voices, which is what happened to me. So I'd been a dissenter for a good 10 years before I was fired. That was really the, the end game of, a, of something that had been going on for a long time. So they exclude dissenters, so the group thing gets worse and worse. They tend to be ideological in the sense that they tend to be on the left wing of politics. Um, uh, so they can sort of see that this goes into a much bigger ideological battle that's happening in the world at the moment. And then finally you have the perverse um, reinforcement of the, the funding. So if you're an organisation like the Australian Student Marine Science or one of these others, it's important that you get money flowing for your workers. You know, if you're the boss of the Australian Student Marine Science, you want to make sure that your workers have a job in five years' time because they have to pay their mortgage, etc. And, of course, you know, if the reef is dying, um, you're much likely to get much more government money um, flowing to your organisation if you bang the drum that the reef is dying. So all these things are adding together to form a situation where now, I'm afraid, you can't believe almost anything a lot of these environmental science organisations are saying. And by the way, the same applies to other areas of science. It's, it's different in detail, but the untrustworthiness has spread to a huge number of other areas of science. 
Well, you know, we are under such a mass um, illusion uh, about things, our, our bias that's been created through all the media outlets and, you know, all the stories that keep coming out, which leads me to ask you your thoughts about what's been happening recently in Canada and Greece, um, the temperature rise on the East Coast of the United States, um, Europe even, which every, well, the climate alarmists are uh, pointing to the fact that this is evidence that we're in a massive climate change, which, of course, is then requiring uh, all these countries around the world to cut down production. I just heard that there, you know, the United States Senate is thinking of stopping the production of fertilizers, which you said, I think, earlier in our conversation happening around the world as well, and making artificial food, you know, all this whole, this whole huge, huge agenda that is being promoted. Uh, what are your thoughts about what we see happening with the various climate incidences around the world now? Well, it's it's all based on a total corrupted scientific system, which is trying to portray a very gentle warming that's been occurring over the last 50 years. Um, you know, half a degree in the last 50 years, this is not exactly dangerous. If you look at the United States, there is absolutely no doubt that the 1930s were far hotter than anything that you're um, seeing now. Mm -hmm. The Dust Bowl, you know, the John Steinbeck, Grapes of Wrath, they've tried to eliminate it from history, but it really happened, right? Mm-hmm. The fires, we get, we get terrible fires in Australia. We always have. You know, the 1930s, there were periods of terrible, terrible fires. Now, whenever a fire happens now, it's always climate change. When a ha- fire happened back in the 1930s, they'd say things like, we've got to build be- better houses to be able to withstand them. We've got to backburn to to stop the the fires getting too bad nowadays oh it's climate change therefore we've got to stop putting petrol or gas in our car so every single calamity that occurs nowadays is climate change and yet we know that the number of people who dies from major calamities has drastically fallen you know it's just a few percent of what it used to be pro rata back in the 1920s when you had is it the Galveston uh, hurricane in the United States that killed more than any other? I can't remember which one. Um, nowadays, people can move off the coast. The houses are stronger. Uh, so there's total corruption of science here, and it's being used for political purposes to do all sorts of crazy things. And you mentioned the most crazy of all, which is to stop fertilizer production, because if you do that, people are going to starve, unless you have some... <laughs> Some alternative, people are going to starve. Yeah, so that's why I think this conversation is so important. You know, the climate has always had a variation over time. I've seen some of those charts, and we know that there are cycles, right? That's, That's the natural part of how our planet works, how it functions. There are cycles of climate warming, climate cooling, it's natural. Um, we have to adapt with it. But this um, story that's being promoted now that we, that humans and how we have chosen to live our lives has created this intense climate change is the false narrative. Exactly. And I think that the historical and geological evidence is, is so powerful in demonstrating that you've got to have 
major second thoughts about whether the gentle warming we've got now, is it anthropogenic? It could well be. I, I think there will be a small signal in there, but what caused the, the, the hot weather in Egypt <laughs> and everywhere else around the world in 5,000 years ago, when the Egyptians were building pyramids, the world was one or two degrees hotter than it is now. Why do you think they call Greenland Greenland? It used to be green in the what, 1100s or 1200s when the Vikings first arrived there. It isn't anymore. It's much colder now. If you go to the Swiss Alps, you can find uh, areas as, as the glaciers retreat due to the, the present warming. It's uncovering trees, right? Stumps of trees are uncovering, been uncovered in the snow. The tree line at the moment is now hundreds of, of, of uh, well, many, many hundreds of feet below that, right? So we're uncovering where trees used to be. So that means that when those trees were growing, the climate was a lot warmer than it is now. Now, we're talking about, you know, a thousand years ago, maybe 2,000 years ago, maybe just a few hundred years ago. What caused that climate change? It certainly wasn't burning coal. These are the natural fluctuations. And people are ignoring the, well, the scientists are ignoring the natural fluctuations and pretending that they understand what stood what caused those, which they don't, and also pretending they understand what's causing the present fluctuations, which we just simply don't know. And I think you nailed it. We need to be able to adapt because irrespective of whether the carbon dioxide is causing a gentle warming or not, we will be facing major climatic changes in the next hundreds to thousands of years. It is a certainty and you've got to make sure that you can adapt to that. <laughs> I have to ask you this question, Peter. Um, what do you think about blocking out the sun? Which has been <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I saw that. They're going to block out the sun. They're going to put something up in space. Or, you know, on the Great Barrier Reef, you know what they're going to do here? They're going to make clouds over the Great Barrier Reef. They, they're pretending. <laughs> they've actually done these experiments, these pathetic experiments where they make a little bit of a mist over the reef. They think they're going to block out the sun to stop the water getting hot, right, on an area the size of Germany. And they're going to keep that there for weeks on end. I estimated it would, it was, I did this estimation, it would require every single airliner on Earth to be above the Great Barrier continuously to spray, you know, stuff into the air, just barking madness. <laughs> and that demonstrates how, how the, the scientific institutions have lost contact with reality. You know, that's the problem here because the media never brings them to task. They don't say, are you barking mad? I mean, seriously, are you mad? Because this is mad, isn't it? They never get asked that question so they can go on in their dream la-la land, which is the problem that we've got at the moment. Yeah, you know, I, uh, it's just so incredible to think about the things that mad scientists are doing. I mean, they are, they're just, you know, out of touch with uh, understanding nature. Um, so uh, let's talk about what you've created. So you were fired because you were challenging bad science at your university. We can't have that. <laughs> and then you uh, have gone on and you're part of creating an organization called Reef Rebels. And I, I want you to talk about your work with Reef Rebels and um, how people can support you and what you're doing and um, how you're really out there trying to 
create um, a, a greater truth to what's happening with the reef and, you know, a bigger story as well. Yeah, well, I'm working with the Institute of Public Affairs, which is a, a sort of a conservative think tank, a free market think tank. I work unpaid. Uh, I deliberately decided that I didn't want payment because I'm, I'm always accused of being in the pay of the coal industry or the oil industry. They never, they never ring me up to tell lies and pay me <laughs> to tell lies, but I'm always accused of it. <laughs> so I thought, well, the best way to avoid that is to just not take any payment. They still accuse me of being in pay, but anyway... And essentially for the Reef Rebels, is it's, it's sort of what it says. We're trying to get younger people involved um, because in the end, the future is the young people. Eventually, they're going to tweet that this is all a load of rubbish, isn't it? And to try to get the information out to them. So I run a YouTube um, channel where we're getting a lot of information out on the reef called Reef Rebels. Um, We'd like to do more with young people. We're sort of just starting in that. We took a whole bunch of young people out to the reef and we did a video of them, you know, because they'd all been told the reef is dead. And of course, you show it and say, well, it's not dead, is it? <laughs> uh, and that's essentially what we're trying to do. But really, it's about getting the information out. The reef has got record high coral cover in 2022. And by the way, 2023 is going to be basically the same, I'm virtually certain. And that you are being told a lot of lies. Um, Americans, you're all being told lies about the reef. My my missus went out to went to America uh, just a few couple of years ago, and of course everybody she met when she told them, "Oh, I'm from North Queensland, Australia," they said, "Oh, Great Barrier isn't it terrible?" You know, everybody over there thinks it's dead. It's not. It's not dead, and that's the message which we're trying to get out. And I think that's true in Australia, too, because I've been mentioning to you know, Australians that, um, you know, we're, I'm going to have this conversation with you, and I listen to your presentation, and they raise their eyebrows, and they go, what? It's, it's okay? Great Barrier Reef isn't dying? So I think it's a prevailing belief system out there, you know, out into the world that the, the reef is dying, and, uh, you know, it's been a victim of whether it's fertilization, you know, or fertilizers or whether it's mud or whether it's uh, the weather, but it's, it's a lie, basically. And it can't be maintained. And this is the thing. So if you look at um, people saying North Queensland, we've been around for a long time, okay? We, we heard the stories in the 1960s and the 70s and the 80s. And, and eventually, the older you get, you think, haven't I heard this before? And so more and more people are tweaking that this just is not true. Now, if you're an American or if you're, a, if you're from England, you've only really heard about the death of the Great Barrier Reef from climate change for the last 10 or 15 years. So you've got a little way to go before you're going to realise, haven't I heard this before? But the message is slowly getting out, and I think that eventually the wheels are going to fall off this complete lie and people are going to start to realise it. And it's probably going to happen with the younger people. They're going to tweak first. Well, uh, I know that you you are passionate about what you're doing, getting this message out, and, and that's why I so appreciate not only this conversation that we've had today, Peter, because it's been quite enlightening for me. I'm sure it's been enlightening to all my listeners, but I, I just really honor your integrity and your passion, and um, you're able to really communicate and convey the truth, and you do it in a way that is, um, you know, unemotional, <laughs> but just presenting the facts. 
And you really are a true, you know, race rebel. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're my kind of people, Peter, <laughs> because you are committed to truth, right? And, and as a scientist, an honest scientist, you actually have all the evidence if people are willing to look at it. And I, I, uh, I'm sure it's been a really tra- challenging time when you went through that whole court debacle. But um, I, I just honor your courage and your strength and your commitment to speak the truth. And we need so many more people like you out in the world. So uh, I'm very grateful for all that you are doing and for your uh, passion for your voice of truth. Well, thanks. Um, the truth will out. It will. It always does. And I thank you for helping us do that. Thanks very much. Well, you're so welcome. I I really feel compelled to um, present what I have been discovering. And it was, uh, I've been doing these interviews and as I have conversations with people all over the world and do my own research and I'm I'm a bit of a contrarian in that I don't believe everything I read <laughs> or watch. And uh, this is a really passionate subject because I think without the truth, we're heading for some uh, really dangerous times. So we need to really understand the nature and, and how nature works and the cycles of nature. I think you've 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 put the you've hit the hammer on the head. Uh, sorry, the nail on the head with the hammer there. We've got to get to the truth, um, otherwise you make bad decisions, and some of the decisions we make will are actually even now causing people to die. You know, if we reduce fertilizer, we're going to get people to die, uh, and the truth must out. We must get those scientific institutions back reliable, um, well, at least certainly a lot more reliable than they are now. So that's why um, these conversations are so important. And that's why I'd like everyone to visit Peter's YouTube channel, which is Reef-Rebels, and learn more about the research that Peter is doing and his great work. So thank you all. And until next time, this is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and you're listening to What Women Must Know. Bye for now. I think it, it you know. <laughs>